This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. This week, we're going a bit meta as Meg talks with Glenn Washington about the development of podcasts as a journalistic medium. Glenn is one of the mainstays in the medium. He's a longtime host of Snap Judgment and recently became the host of two new podcasts, Spook and Heaven's Gate. Meg talks to him about all of that. Then I'm joined by my CJR colleagues to discuss the big media stories of the past few days, including Facebook under congressional fire, a civil war between news and editorial at the Wall Street Journal, and the challenge media reporters face when covering their own newsrooms. First, though, here's Megan Glenn. Welcome to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX, the show about the decisions people make that change everything. My name is Glenn Washington, and life. So let's talk about your public radio origin story. It's a pretty interesting one, a little bit unconventional. So kind of walk us through how you, you know, came to be the host of Snap Judgment. Yeah, it is kind of strange, actually. Um, so I, my background has really nothing to do with media. I've been running. I had been running nonprofit organizations for some time, and I have a legal background, and um, that was kind of my life. And But I've been a public radio listener and supporter for a long time, and one day, actually, actually I was listening to a podcast, and uh, this is back in the day when podcasts were actually on iPods, and they there was a talk about a contest for they're uh, they're looking for people who are hosty and they had Terry Gross and Ira Glass and a few other sort of uh public radio superstars um on this sort of ask for people to participate in this contest and i had, i realized i was finding out about it the day before the contest uh was over i went on ahead and recorded my little entry and uh, sent it in and forgot about it and about Three months later, I got a phone call from the contest organizers saying I was one of 10 finalists nationwide. And I thought, nice try, Mark. Uh, very funny. And hung up the phone. And because uh, I thought it was my buddy Mark trying to play a joke on me. It was not, as it turns out. They asked me if I wanted to do this. And to make a very longish story shorter, um, I was one of three finalists in that contest. Um, and it went on to pitch Snap Judgment as a project to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and was able eventually to get uh, the loot to start the first year. And so how do you think your idea was different from kind of what was out there at the time? Um, I think it was more actually, more than the idea itself, was kind of the, the attitude and the swagger that we were trying to bring to public media. The idea was really, hey, let's tell stories, but get rid of all the boring stuff. Let's get right to the heart of the story. Let's drop people into the heart and let's do it and use the soundscape as a kind of a second narration. Let's make it as lush and as full and um, as as tension inducing as we can. And and that's a grand idea. I think what we're really though what we're trying to do was bring in people's stories who were being largely excluded from 
the public media airwaves. And I, I'm, I'm happy that the show has not really strayed from that initial impulse to create it. That's actually a really great transition because I was about to ask you about the evolution of snap judgment from, you know, those early days as just an idea till now where there are over 400,000 podcasts, you know, fighting for our ears and our attention. Yeah, it's a it's a wholly different world. And, uh, you know, and we have evolved since the show started. I think, um, you know, this, but it, it started with this crazy, small, ragtag team um, go, building from scratch, uh, uh, it was nuts that first couple years trying to get this show out. Um, it, it, the the um, you know we didn't have a library of material, so we had to try and make a new show every week, and it had to be good. And when, because we're trying to bust out in a certain way, and it was an amazing team, small, dedicated, ridiculous team that got us through. And I think, and I'm thrilled you know some of them are mega stars in their own right within public media from roman mars with 99 percent invisible stephanie Fu is over there um killing it at at this american life rita daniels is uh is a host of her own sort of situation um it's it was just what a what an amazing crew to be able to start a show with that is pretty remarkable i didn't realize how many of the people that have their own podcast now started at snap judgment everybody goes through snap um (laughs) (laughs) um, it's like a hazing process for podcasting (laughs) nick vanderkalk spent some time over here you know um from uh, love and radio and maybe this is this is why it appealed to many of them but one of the reasons it's appealed to me for so long is the authenticity of voice your smooth staccato has become pretty unmistakable uh, at least for rabid podcast consumers like myself. I'm wondering if you can maybe describe the sound and style of the type of storytelling that you do and how that influences the type of stories that you do as well. So I think in a large part, Snap Judgment is a response to kind of what we thought, what we saw going on as far as public radio storytelling is concerned. What we're, what we're What you see often is you know, a, a generation of public radio producers are raised on this idea of a little exposition, a little story, a little bit more uh, exp- explanation, story, explanation, story, and then you wrap things up with a bow. What we're trying to do at Snap, which is a little bit different, is we start and we go, story, 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 stop. It's a different pattern. And what we're trying to do, the reason why it's a different pattern is this. We see the listeners as meaning machines. Everyone is. They try to insert meaning or attach meaning to whatever they hear. Everyone does this all of the time. And I'll tell you a story. Here's what it means. Say, well, you, what, what does it mean? 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 And what we think here is that if I, as a storyteller, tell you what the story means, you stop. Your mind stops. Okay, I get it. And what, we, what we're trying to do is create stories where we never do that. You will never, ever hear me at the end of a piece put a public radio bow on it. Here's the moral of the story. And this means that. And this is what you should take home. You'll never hear me do that. Because what I want you to do is have a vicarious experience. 
I want to push the story to you. I want you to think about this piece. I want you to talk to it. This, to talk about this piece with your spouse, your teacher, your mother, your father. I want this to be yours now. And because at the end of the day, storytelling is the closest thing that we have to magic. This is the closest thing that we have to telepathy. This is the closest thing that we can have to getting inside someone else's skin. And I really, really, really want you to get inside someone else's skin. That's that's snap. How do I put the listener in someone else's shoes? And every single thing that we do with soundscaping, that we do with music, that we do with with speech is all about making that transition happen from storyteller to receiver. So it's your story now. And since Snap Judgment debuted, you know, seven years ago now, you've become a mainstay in the growing podcast world. And just last month, you pushed out two new podcasts, uh, a spinoff of Snap Judgment called Spook, which is about paranormal encounters. Sounds very cool and spooky. Uh, And another one called Heaven's Gate about the religious cult, which you're particularly qualified to host the latter show, if my sources are correct. You spent your childhood in a cult. Is that right? I did. I grew up in the Worldwide Church of God, which was a apocalyptic end of days Jesus cult. And so what was that like reporting on something that was so deeply connected to your early years? I really appreciated it as a kind of a do over to get into the to, you know, what was happening. We my organization thankfully did not end up in a suicide pact, which is what happened to the Heaven's Gate community. And I am ever so thankful for that. But after leaving it, it felt like we were maybe one or two right turns away from having that happen to that group. And so going back and revisiting and understanding what happened with the Heaven's Gate, which ended in 39 people committing suicide in a San Diego uh, mansion, revisiting that story and exploring that story and speaking to the survivors, I felt in a large, it was largely was almost like me going back to my own history and my own past and saying, why did we do what we did? I, I think it's too easy to dismiss people for whatever reason as monsters or crazies or whatever it may be. And I guess my background in a religious cult organization like that leaves me with this impression forever that whatever you think, it could be us. It could be me. It could have been me in that mansion in that in San Diego. It could be me um, convinced that uh, I had to do some terrible act because it was a message from God. I it, it, it gives you a certain perspective where you can't just dismiss people as wackos or crazies. At the time of Snap Judgment's launch and continuing through today, it's kind of redefined what public radio, I guess, or I guess now what audio could sound like. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about 
how to maintain your voice and like resisting the pressure to conform to a specific sound, especially, I guess, on, on the public radio side, which tends to be overwhelmingly, you know, late 50s white male. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people who want to tell you what you should sound like, no matter what you do. Uh, you know, any kind of creative, even non-creative thing, they're going to tell you what you should paint like, what you should sing like, how you should climb a mountain. Somebody always wants to do that. And a lot of times with very, very good intent. And I'm not saying that you should necessarily uh, just disparage any advice that you get, but I am saying that having a confidence in your own voice at some point, it's going to be the only thing that carries you through. And knowing that wherever, whatever your voice is, that it's an important voice. We see this so many times. I, I hear it like uh, someone will say, well, my voice isn't like uh, powerful enough or strong enough or it's too high pitched and all that kind of stuff. I hope if you listen to a few Snap Judgment shows, you're going to find out that in the end of the day, your own vocal curiosities are not the thing that is going to that, that can st- can stop you from relating to another person. Every single voice is powerful in its own right. You just have to find how how to use it, and that's why I love the crazy diversity of voices on Snap Judgment. I think um, it sounds like. Us. It sounds like there's 140 different languages being spoken within four blocks of where our studios are. And there's kids of all different types walking down the streets in front of our studios. I want all of them to feel like this is their show, that they could tell a story that means something on this program. When we first started off the show, I remember someone making a joke saying you want to, you should call it this new American life. And I thought that was funny. It used to be that this type of uh, diversity that kind of um, around Snap Judgment's home base of Oakland, California, this was sort of an urban thing. But as America continues to evolve, this is not just an urban thing anymore. This is an American thing. This is, this is actually a real aspect of this American life, of our collective American life. Now for some tech talk. This week, representatives, but not CEOs, from Facebook, Google, and Twitter sat down with lawmakers to answer questions about their platform's role in allowing foreign interference in the 2016 election. Joining me for tech talk is CJR's Nuska Renner. Thanks for having me back, Pete. I would like to uh, differentiate Tech Talk from TED Talk, which I would literally never do. I wish I was quick enough to come up with a joke for that, but I'm glad you're here regardless. I would like a little like uh, microphone that wraps around my face, though. I think that would be pretty cool. Like Steve Jobs? <laughs> so, I already dressed like Steve Jobs. So. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on. Moving on and moving down to what took place in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill this week. What was resolved as these representatives of the platforms and tech companies met with Congress? Yeah, so not much was resolved. I think the big questions going into it, so on Monday night before the the first hearing, 
Um, there were, you know, clearly planned leaks about what uh, numbers of of people on each platform sort of saw, or what the what the extent of the publication on each platform was. So of the of the ads of of, of Russian purchased ads. So on in Facebook's case, they um, you know the number 126 million was kind of touted everywhere as like, you know, one in three Americans like may have seen. Russian ads. I thought Mark Zuckerberg told us earlier this year that it was just a small ad buy. Well, so there were two things that went into him saying that. One is that it wasn't very costly. I I don't know. $100,000, right? Yeah, which is like, you know, part of the scandal here is that it takes $100,000 to potentially reach one in three Americans, which if you compare that to like TV advertising or something like that. It's like scandalously small. The other thing is that if we continue the comparison to TV advertising, there's really there's really no evidence as to like who actually saw it, who even paused on these ads. We know that they showed up in news feeds, but we don't know which of those people logged in on that particular day to actually see it. Um, and that's why at these hearings, even though the numbers are so large, the tech companies were really downplaying the actual impact as a very small percentage of what was happening on the platform. So I think they said like le- you know it was like a less than one percent number of, of, the total, of total, total activity on the platform, right. or like less than like point one percent. And it seemed like they were trying to thread a needle between saying, well, it wasn't, it didn't reach that many people, it didn't have that big an impact, but they also tell advertisers that what you put on our platform has big impact. So this is the big irony. I mean, this is like these companies are constantly being caught in totally ironic statements. This is uh, Matthew Ingram on CJR Today posted a great article that makes exactly this point, which is that, you know, last year they were basically advertising or like, you know, saying to advertisers, you can have like, look at what you can have. Like you can target like this many Americans or whatever. And this year they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Like that didn't really have that much reach. So which do they want? Do they want to be attractive to like consumers and, uh, you know, friendly to democracy or do they want to um, do they want to appease advertisers? This tension was also seen in the fact that the Congress people who questioned the tech companies rightly pointed out that it was not the tech company executives who showed up to these hearings. It was was the general counsels. And do you know where Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg were? I do know. They were announcing how much money they made, right? Yeah, they had their quarterly earnings call. So, it, I mean, that that to me is like such an amazing image of like having like Colin Stretch, your general counsel, testifying like he wasn't sweating, but like there was quite intense questioning, especially on day two. Proverbial sweating. Proverbial sweating. Uh, I don't know if anybody who works at Facebook ever sweats. They, um, they can just mop their brows <laughs> with $100 bills if they do. Um, but no, all jokes aside, I mean, the that that Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg were simultaneous to Colin Stretch, like testifying about the democratic integrity of Facebook as a platform, that they were then going and saying, look, like we made, what was it, 47% more revenue than Q3 last year? That's insane. And by the way, Google had a similarly huge number. To me, it's just like the ironies are are unending when it comes to these platforms. They always want to have it both ways. Right. And I only saw clips of this, but it sounds like you watched it a little bit closer than I did. 
you obviously aren't satisfied with the answers that the tech companies gave. Did it seem like the lawmakers were? There's a question about like how much of this is like theater and how much of it is going to result in actual regulation down the line. But the questioning really was trying to make the platforms take this more seriously. I think that many of the Congress people felt that Facebook and Twitter and Google were not taking this seriously enough, which I would agree with. On the other hand, it's really hard to tell what actual impact these Russian ads made on people. Facebook didn't want to give any of the 3,000 ads they turned over to Congress to the American public, but thank God Congress... (laughs) did turn over some of these ads, and they are planning on turning over all of them to the public. Right. And so we're not really ever going to be able to determine just what the measurable impact was on the 2016 election. It seems like the goal now is what can these companies do to avoid this sort of thing happening in 2018 and beyond? Yes. And I think what we will see in terms of regulation, I mean, the tech companies are constantly trying to say, we are regulating ourselves better than better and faster than you can. So, like, don't pay attention to, like, the man behind the green curtain or whatever. But when it comes to political ads, I think what we will see is more traditional FEC regulation at the, at the very least. That sort of ends up disclosing for political ads who purchased them. And, um, you know, the only, like, One of the only, like, technical laws that was broken here had to do with foreign interference or interference by by foreign nationals in an election, uh, allegedly. So I think that's also the thing that people will be most motivated to to change and to to disclose. Yeah, and as the lawmakers uh, either come up with those regulations or let these tech companies continue to do their own regulation, we will have you back to help walk us through it. All right, now for this week's roundtable, I've got CJR senior editor Christy Chisholm and Delacorte fellow Karen Ho. Guys, there have been two stories outside of Facebook that we've been talking a lot about in the office this week. The first one is related to Robert Mueller's intensifying investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Mueller, of course, issued the first indictments in that probe on Monday, which feels like months ago at this point. And not everyone is happy. And I don't just mean the president. The Wall Street Journal's editorial pages have been attacking Mueller in bizarrely aggressive terms for the past couple weeks. And Karen, many journalists, including some in the journal's own newsroom, are pushing back. There have been several columns questioning Mueller's integrity casting the spotlight on Hillary Clinton and even suggesting that Trump issue blanket pardons. But the biggest outrage came from an unsigned editorial last week, part of which reads, it is no slur against Mr. Mueller's integrity to say that he lacks the critical distance to conduct a credible probe of the bureau he ran for a dozen years. He could best serve the country by resigning to prevent further political turmoil over that conflict of interest. Yeah. And that conflict of interest they're talking about is that somehow Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State allowed for a uranium deal involving a Canadian company being taken over by a Russian company to go through when Mueller was FBI director. And so somehow he's going to get involved in that and would be investigated and couldn't conduct his own probe. This was criticized by journalists in many different newsrooms. As we mentioned, Christy, some of them were Wall Street Journal reporters. 
Absolutely. Either people who are still on staff at the journal or who had been previously on staff at the journal. But yeah, I mean, I think it's probably the most painful for the people who are still on staff because, you know, there is a, a, a strict divide in the newsroom between the editorial board and the newsroom. But, you know, that editorial that Karen was just reading from was signed by the editorial board, not a specific editorial columnist. It was like, that's the voice of the institution still. And so I think that it's not only undermining to have your employer put out a piece like that, but I mean, I think it just probably has to make you question your role at an organization like that, too. Yeah. And you can't exclude from this the fact that the journal is owned by Rupert Murdoch, who also owns places like the New York Post, and more specifically in line with the arguments of the journal's editorial board and some of their columnists, Fox News. Um, this is something that we've seen play out over the course of this last two weeks or so as we approached the indictments and then heard that Paul Manafort and Rick Gates were indicted, that George Papadopoulos had pled guilty. There's what seems to be a coordinated attack against Mueller's credibility from Murdoch outlets. And now we're seeing some, for lack of a better word, subtweets from journal reporters and editors pushing back against kind of this narrative that the paper has gone over to some sort of anti-Mueller pro-Trump side. The tension is visible. You know, many other people are noticing this. And even if they're not directly talking about it uh, through subtweets on Twitter, they're, they're leaking it to outlets like Vanity Fair. Right. Joe Pompeo wrote a piece uh, in Vanity Fair in which he quoted a former journal editor, Bill Gruskin, who's now at the Columbia Journalism School, where he talked about the editorial page always being sort of out there, but called this, quote, a different level of crazy. I think the other thing is on the business side, the audience is going to, to feel a, a different kind of tension because no matter how great the reporting is on the editorial side, people are going to say how you know, my subscription helps pay the salaries of these editorial board members, and I don't know if I want to continue doing that. Yeah, and we've criticized the entire idea of editorial boards on here before. Uh, that's a conversation for a different day. But Christy, what's the upshot of all this for the actual journalists at The Wall Street Journal? Well, it just puts them in a really difficult position, and I think it's probably going to leave a lot of journalists with a question of like whether they want to stay there or whether they're also going to jump ship like a few other people have done. Yeah, uh, it's something to watch because this investigation uh, appears to just be ramping up. Turning to the other big story that we've been following, the ripple effects from the Harvey Weinstein scandal, as we've talked about, have reached journalism. And the most recent name to come up this week is NPR's top editor, Mike Oreskes, who resigned as a CJR board member on Thursday. He had been accused by journalists at The New York Times, where he worked previously, and by current NPR staffers for sexual harassment and creating a, an uncomfortable work environment for the women there. Um, this goes into some of the same topics that, again, we've talked about before. But one of the interesting aspects of this story is the way NPR has reported on its own newsroom. Interestingly, you know, one of their anchors was a national security correspondent. So Mary Louise Kelly does not specialize in media reporting like David Fulkenflik does. And so it was really interesting it's not that she hasn't been in intense situations before in interviewing, but speaking with her boss, you know, the person responsible for her promotions, her raises, her salary. Yeah, you're talking about a conversation that happened on Wednesday afternoon between Mary Louise Kelly and NPR CEO Yara Munn to talk about Oreski's resignation. And she was really forceful in her questioning. At one point, she had identified several of the allegations against Oreski's and asked him 
directly, quote, if that is the sequence, if you knew of these multiple allegations, did it cross your mind that leaving Mike in his job might put other women, might put our colleagues at risk? I thought that was a, a pretty unique moment to hear the head of an organization grilled by one of his own reporters. Oh, I thought it was really powerful and I like major props to her for the way that she handled that situation too. I think it also there's an interesting kind of parallel between that dynamic and the dynamic newsrooms everywhere and makes it so hard for women to talk to their editors, uh, to talk to management about harassment or uncomfortable situations in the newsroom, whatever. Like, it's got to be uncomfortable to grill your boss on how he's handled problems, like in his newsroom. Like, that's a difficult conversation. It's a more difficult conversation to talk to your boss about the lack of accountability in a newsroom or to argue with the way that things have been handled and regarding policy or, you know, whatever. Anyway, I think it was a really good model for how to handle these situations. Yeah, we in the newsroom, I think we were all impressed with Mary Louise Kelly, with David Falkenflick's reporting on his own newsroom. And, you know, a lot of us are asking ourselves right now, like you said, like the ripple effect has reached the journalism world. Um, So journalists are now asking themselves not only how to report on this in other newsrooms, but also how they should be reporting on their own newsrooms. You know, that's a really uncomfortable thing to do. And I don't think that there's really like a handbook for for how to do that. So this is one of the best examples that I've seen, at least in recent memory, for, for how to handle something like that. Yeah, in some ways, they're writing that handbook for other outlets as this situation is unfolding. Absolutely. When I was listening to it, it really demonstrated an understanding regarding a lot of the reporting uh, that's come out or even the commentary about who knew and, you know, why did people not step forward and, you know, who was put at risk uh, as a result of that, you know, with all these other cases in and out of journalism. What I think Mary Louise Kelly did was she also asked a lot of questions that other women at NPR wish they could have in that position. She wanted to know the exact details of the timeline. She wanted to know as specific as possible what prompted the request for Oreski's resignation. I think those, you know, as journalists, it's sometimes in in the day-to-day, it's really easy to forget, like, who you're representing when you're asking those questions across in an awkward conversation. And, And that is, you know, a very good example of one of the hardest ones you can have. And I think a lot of women stopped everything that they were doing in and outside of NPR. And and Mary Louise asked the questions that they wished that they could have done. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Glenn Washington for talking with Meg earlier and thank my colleagues for being here with me. As always, you can check out the great content we've got up on our website at cjr.org. We appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next week.